on the screen, you see obviously a diamond, a solitaire, very similar to the rock I purchased 14 and many years ago with money I saved for my paper route when I was like from sixth grade on. Now, it's not quite that big because the old paper route must have been a really good paper route if I bought a ring that size. But no, I, I saved that money and I bought Tina a nice little ring and asked her to marry. And all the guys here today, the husbands anyway, we probably have a similar story we could come up here and tell folks about how we saved money for that engagement ring, where we bought it, the processes going through our minds, right, how we kept it safe and secure until we gave it and, and asked the, our wives to marry us, how we polished it every night and looked at it, or maybe that was just me, I don't know, but how we, how we just, it was so exciting until we gave it to our wives. What a moment. But that's really not the reason why I showed you that picture to recall our engagement moments. Rather, I just want you to remember and emphasize that diamonds are uncommon and beautiful, which is why we value them. They begin as some ordinary carbon-based structure, right? And through a process of high pressure, intense heat, over a long period of time, they become a diamond. Instead of cracking under that pressure or melting in the heat like other rocks, again, over those three things, pressure, heat, over time, it's transformed into the super valuable rare substance. And it evolves from just this ordinary carbon-based material. So anyone want to guess where I'm heading, where I'm going with this analogy? Over the past three weeks, we've watched Joseph stand up to extreme pressure, many hot moments in his life, over a prolonged period of time, 22 years. God was in control, and he was forming Joseph into a what? A diamond. Joseph was no ordinary carbon-based substance. And as we conclude our time in Joseph this morning, I want you to know this, that God uses the same process in your life and mine to transform us into something special and valuable. James, the brother of Jesus, put it this way in James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, the heat, the pressure that we face on this earth is often the world trying to get us to conform to their values. It's the temptation to cheat or lie in order to get ahead because our culture says the ends justify the means. Or to go along with the world as they celebrate immorality because you're afraid of what other people might think if you stand up against it. Or just the pressure these kids face in school to hide their light under a basket because the world loves darkness. You see, every time we take a stand for the Lord and we don't crack under this pressure, this heat, you become something a little less common, more valuable. You become diamond-like. Every time we tell the truth when we're tempted to lie, every time we pay Something that we owe when we're tempted to steal. Every time you choose forgiveness over vengeance. Every time you stay faithful to your wife or to the Lord in an immoral culture, you become more diamond-like. Or, let's just drop the metaphor, okay? You become more Christ-like. So before we read Genesis 45, I want to remind you that jo Joseph was made of the same stuff we're made out of. 
just like the rest of us. And when we met him in, in Genesis 37, Joseph was just a teenager. But instead of compromising and avoiding the heat and the pressure, Joseph did what was right and he suffered for it. You can either stand up for what's right or you can crack under the pressure. And as we've been going through Joseph the past three weeks, we see that his life was one pressure-filled situation after the other where choices had to be made. And from our experience in this life and his experience with his choices, we know that what I'm going to put up on the screen is true, that doing the right thing in a fallen world often means doing the hard thing. And that bears repeating, I think. Doing the right thing in a fallen world often means doing the hard thing. Time and time again, we've seen Joseph do the right thing. We left him last week, and he was elevated to second in command of all of Egypt. Now, we're going to jump ahead to the family reunion. So there's, we're skipping over a couple chapters, and I hope you go back and read them on your free time. But let me summarize those as we're leading up to the family reunion. As predicted, the dream that Pharaoh had, the famine did come, and it strikes the ancient Near East. And Joseph's brothers, the same men who betrayed him, were forced to travel to Egypt and beg for food. And little did they know, right, that they had to deal with the same man that they betrayed 22 years earlier. They didn't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized them. And from the moment he first saw them, Joseph could have taken revenge, but he was concerned about his father and his youngest brother, Benjamin. Both of them were back home. So Joseph put his brothers through a series of tests. First, he held Simeon in prison until they returned with their youngest brother, Benjamin. Then he framed Benjamin as a thief. And he created a situation where the other ten guys, the ten brothers, were free to return to their homeland. All they had to do was turn their back on Benjamin, just like they turned their back on Joseph many years ago. But when we get to the conclusion of Genesis 44, something really, really, really incredible happens. See, this is the first time in Scripture where we read about somebody offering himself as a sacrifice for somebody else. And it was the brother named Judah. The one a couple sermons ago I said was a tourist versus Joseph being the ambassador. The one who had kind of a checkered past. He stood up and he said to this Egyptian man that he didn't know who he was. He said, let me take Benjamin's place. I'll go to the pit. I'll be your slave. Let Benjamin go. Punish me instead. And that's just the breaking point for Joseph when his brother Judah did that. He can't take it any longer, right? So, we be, so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 45, here's what we read. The tears begin to fall, and Joseph reveals his identity. Verses 1 through 3. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified. At his presence. Again, if this scene just reveals anything, it's that Joseph is like us. He's a hurting human being at this point who's been under pressure for so long of his life. And again, when Judah offered to take Benjamin's place, Joseph just says, enough. I can't take it anymore. And he kicks everybody out of the room. And he experiences what Solomon would later describe in Ecclesiastes 
chapters three, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, when we read this. Solomon writes, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. This was Joseph's time to weep. And that's exactly what he does. It says he cried out. And the word that's translated here, he cried out, is not some meek, mild word. It's a very, very forceful, strong word. It's not a whimper. He is crying loudly. See, these tears, they needed to come out of Joseph. Just like there's times in your life and mine where tears need to flow. You know, I see some dads in the room. Who cried at your daughter's wedding? Some of you? Some of you? Well, I know some of you did. When Olivia was married, I cried for a whole week. It's, I've never experienced something like that in my life. I had a whole week of weeping. We pulled up to the hotel on Friday afternoon. It wasn't shortly after that. I find myself crying. The wedding's not till Saturday, and I'm crying. It's Friday, all Friday night, all Saturday morning leading up to the wedding, all Saturday afternoon. I kept having to reaffirm to Aaron, her husband, that I like you. I really do. <laughs> I, I do. I love you. It's, I'm not sad. I'm just crying because I'm so happy. They just had to flow. There was, it was Wednesday, you know, after the wedding. They're already long gone on their honeymoon, and I walk by her room. I look in the empty room. What happens? Oh, they flow. They just start crying. I was a mess, uncontrollable tears. And it was the same way for Joseph. He just couldn't control them. It was a time to weep. And during this weeping, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. And he said, I am Joseph. This chapter is one of the most emotion-filled, dramatic chapters in all of Scripture. Because up to this point, he's always used his Egyptian name in front of the brothers. And now he reveals, he uses his Hebrew name in front of the brothers. And they, that's the name they heard their father call Joseph when they were kids. The veil is starting to be pulled back. He's starting to step out of the shadows. He makes himself known to the brothers. And his concern, if you remember our, our, our passage, was not for himself or his brothers. His concern was for his father, Jacob. Is my father alive, he said. But his brothers could not answer him. And we all remember our fifth grade teacher or fourth grade teacher. Can't or won't. Could not or would not. You know? And so the Bible says could not. They were unable to answer Joseph. They're shocked. I mean, they're, they've seen a ghost. They don't know what to do. This is Joseph. It's been 22 years. So consider, before we move on, from this account here, that being emotional here for Joseph, he's not cracking under the pressure we talked about earlier. Being sinful is cracking under pressure. Emotions are a normal part of life. Jesus, while on earth, who was fully man and fully God, the God-man, he was emotional. We remember in John 2, 15, Jesus got so angry at the money changers in the temple, he made a whip, drove them out. In John eleven thirty five, Jesus was so sad he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Luke twenty two forty four, Jesus was so anguished and 
suffering at the thought of his betrayal, that his sweat was like drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. He was emotional. Being stoic, showing no emotion, is not a sign of spirituality. The key is, is don't let your emotions lead you on this downward path to sin. The Apostle Paul knew this. In Ephesians 4.26, he writes this. Do not, in, he writes this. In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. And we could extrapolate that. In your happiness, do not sin. In your sadness, do not sin. See, that's what makes a diamond. We're going to have these emotions. We just have to know how to control them. That's what made Joseph a diamond. It's hard. They're strong and powerful. And part of the solution is what happens next in this, in this passage of Scripture. Joseph always sees the spiritual side of things. He has spiritual insight into the situation. We read this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Come closer to me, he says. That's that shock we're talking about. Did they step back? They were just cannot believe. And the second time he says, I'm your brother. But this time he adds a little qualifier. He says, the one you sold into Egypt. So he's not trying to shame them, but he's trying to clarify. This is no average Joe you're looking at, right? This is Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into slavery. Now, what was the key word in that passage as I was reading it? Did, you, does the word, did a word keep popping out at you? Three times in that passage, the word, the key word the writer wants us to focus in on is God. It was God. Joseph had this relationship with the Lord, and that's what made standing up to the pressures of life and enduring the temptations and ultimately restoring this relationship with his family, that's what made it possible. See, he was able to step back 2,000 years before James wrote what we read earlier about James and, and going through trials in our life. He was able to step back, and he saw the bigger picture, that God determined it was necessary for him to go through these things. Joseph's life was not about his desires and his will, but God was at the very center of everything, and his relationship with the Lord expanded out from there. This was true for Joseph, and I hope it's true for us. For Joseph, his security is found in his trusting relationship with the Lord. See, for our short walk on this earth for a little while, it's about the same thing, a trusting relationship with the Father and the Son. He meets our daily needs like Joseph. Question, how did Jesus teach us to pray? After he adored the Heavenly Father, gave him praise and honor, he said, and give us this day our daily bread. See, it's daily bread daily trust that God has always wanted from his people, right? Trust him today. No matter Tomorrow will take care of itself. If we do that, 
a daily walk, then our behavior that flows from trusting him daily makes us this rare diamond-like thing in the world (laughs) as we're striving to be more Christ-like. Notice, Joseph never says, like if we turned on ESPN today, he never says, guys, I always believed in myself. I had faith in all my friends. I just knew someday we would do it. You know, my brothers and my teammates would come bail me out. No, the thing that kept him from cracking under pressure was his trust, his daily walk with God. And that's the thing that will hold us together as well. As well, Give us our daily bread. Joseph isn't done. Joseph sends for his father. Let's read on. Now, hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and herds and all that you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother, Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother, Benjamin, and just wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Imagine for a second, what do you think they said? His brothers talked with him. It appears to me that some conversations in the Bible are just not intended for our ears. But this couldn't have been easy. These were broken men, not only by their actions, but by Joseph's response. See, Throughout his life, again, we've just seen Joseph make just one God-honoring decision after another. And here, he could have struck back at them. If he, if he would have struck back at them, he'd have been really easy then for them to, to, to hate him even more, let's say. Or if he'd taken revenge, they probably would have said, oh, we should have just killed him when we had a chance in the first place. See, Joseph's reaction is just the opposite of what we see with the first set of brothers we saw we would read about in the beginning of Genesis because Cain killed Abel. Now, at the end of Genesis, Joseph's interactions with his brothers, totally different picture. Joseph chooses forgiveness. He's determined to show his brothers grace, and grace is uncommon stuff. Grace is the thing that breaks through to a hard heart, and as a result, he was able to forgive those people who wronged him, and that is a beautiful thing. People, if there's, if there's people in your life you haven't forgiven yet, we need to. It is a freeing, freeing, freeing feeling. Now, now understand, these brothers, they have what I think is a pretty tough road ahead of them. They have to go home and tell their father, Dad, we have some great news, right? Joseph's alive, and he's ruling over all of Egypt. And after the shock and the joy wears off for Jacob, he's going to think and he's going to want to He's going to want to know how. How did that happen? And they're going to have to own it, I think. And I think they're beginning to realize this. But remember, doing the right thing in a fallen world often means doing the hard thing. 
And I also want you to appreciate that reconciliation here is a product of forgiveness, that if we struggle with forgiveness, then the reconciliation that we seek sometimes in relationships, it's just not going to come. But it becomes easier when we accept the fact that God is sovereign over everything and that God has forgiven us too. Joseph is able to forgive the brothers in front of him because he looks back and he sees God's hand in every part of his life including those moments of pressure and heat over a long period of time. So his brothers, they prepare to go back to Canaan, and then they're going to relocate this small clan family, the Israelites, down to Egypt. And the Bible explains how God is going to reward Joseph in this life by blessing his entire family. And let's read on from verse 16 to 24. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of all the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, do this. Take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings because the best of all of Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded, and he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them, he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel along the way. Two things I want you to appreciate here. First of all, a little irony, right? The last time Joseph was with his brothers, what happened? What did they take from Joseph? his coat, his clothing. And this time, of all the things he could have given them, as second command of Egypt, what does he give them? New clothes. And as I read that, I couldn't help but think of the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ recorded in Matthew 5, 38, when he said this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you, and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. See, before these words were ever spoken by Jesus, it appears that Joseph had them written on his heart. And you might be thinking, oh yeah, that's nice, but isn't Joseph starting a little trouble here, right, by giving Benjamin five sets of clothes and just one set of clothes for the other brothers? And before you go there, remember this. Those other brothers, they didn't deserve anything. I mean, they probably deserved a prison sentence, if anything. But they got something anyway. Sadly, they forfeited the rest of their reward. So if that scene or that thought bothers you in any way, one brother who gets five times as much as all the rest, well, then I hope that we don't have the same type of thought or feelings at the judgment seat of Christ. Because when the church stands before the Lord one day, all believers who trust in Jesus, are going to receive some new clothes, in a sense. We are all going to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. In fact, we're clothed right now with the righteousness of Christ, now and also then. Everyone who trusts 
and the Lord Jesus to save them will receive eternal life. But we will not all be rewarded equally. If you want to experience a moment like Benjamin here, take the words of Jesus to heart. When he said, now is the time to store up treasure in heaven where moth and dust where moth and dust do not corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. Store up treasure in heaven. Second, Joseph's parting words here were interesting to me. He warns the brothers not to argue or quarrel along the way. And if I might have a little latitude here, you know, I think Joseph is saying, don't crack under that pressure. This is a hot moment. This is intense. Heat of the situation. Don't quack, don't crack. It's going to be hard for them to admit that Joseph is alive. So he's saying, stay focused. It's going to be a tough road. Stay focused along the way. You have a job to do. I gave you new clothes. It's a fresh starting point. You still have work to do. Go get my dad. Don't argue about it on the way. Just go do it. So here's what we read. The revival of their father Jacob. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And this chapter, it concludes there with one of the most touching passages, I think, of Scripture. When these men return home and report these events, their father Jacob, who's sitting there, hasn't seen Joseph for 22 years, believes he's dead. He fears Benjamin might soon be next. He's told Joseph is alive. And the best way that we can really think about this and explain this is this, is that God did something in Jacob's life just exceedingly and abundantly above anything Jacob could ask for or even imagine. In the same way God spared Isaac from Abraham's knife, here God gives Jacob his son back from the dead. And the news, it's so overwhelming. It's just hard for him to believe that God is this good. But sometimes in life, God just exceeds even our own expectations, right, of how good he is. And those are very special times. Here's one way to look at it. Have you ever been really, really, really hungry? And you walk into the house and you smell something delicious and it just smacks you right in the face. I mean, that didn't really happen to me much in my first five years of marriage. But, but, if it did, but maybe you know what I'm talking about. I'm just kidding. <laughs> She told me I could say that. No, uh, I remember that. My favorite breakfast fast back then was biscuits and gravy. So Tina made them one day, and they suddenly were transformed into hockey pucks and glue. I'm like, how did that happen? But now I tell you what, Tina, oh, buddy, she can cook with the best of them. And when she is making something delicious, I smell it. My stomach starts to growl. My mouth starts to water. My brain, it starts to realize something good is coming. This is going to be something good. And all that happens, even though I haven't even actually taken a bite yet, right? All I've got was a whiff, a smell of the goodness to come. Well, as amazing as this moment is for Jacob, the very best that this life could possibly offer, his son, is returned to him. That's just a whiff 
just a smell of what God has prepared for all of us someday in heaven. Those beautiful moments that he has reserved for us in heaven, for those who love him and have trusted in Christ to save them. So here's what we need to do in this life is just press on. Jacob is determined to see his son Joseph one last time before he dies. And so Israel's journey, Jacob's journey to Egypt to see Joseph begins right where we have to leave the story of Joseph because next week we're starting 1 John when Rick gets back. But in conclusion, I want, to, I want you to remember this. Let's, let's think back to the very first sermon on Joseph, okay? And I asked you a series of questions. I said this, who in Scripture was the object of his father's special love? Who was betrayed and sold for pieces of silver? Who in Scripture was stripped of his robe and beaten for doing the will of his father? Who was delivered over to the Gentiles? Who was sent to find lost sheep or his brothers? Who in Scripture was thrown into a pit, a grave, only to rise again? Do you remember the answers? Of course, Jesus and Joseph. And here at the end of this little series on Joseph, let me ask you one other question. Who in Scripture offers unmerited, undeserved grace and forgiveness to his brothers who sinned against him? Joseph did. And who offers unmerited, undeserved grace and forgiveness to us who have sinned against him? Jesus. See, again, the story of Joseph, it's not about Joseph. This is about God. This is about God's supreme reign over the universe, his sovereignty over all matters, over all time and space. It's about his goodness, his grace, and his love for mankind. And because because it went out of this remnant, because what flows from this remnant, this little family of Jacob who survives the famine, will come the greater son of David, right? The Lord Jesus Christ will step out of eternity and step into Bethlehem. And he will be born of a virgin and will come into this world to be Emmanuel, God with us, to be Jesus who will save his people from their sins. That's what flowed out of this little remnant that God is preserving. All of this, the story of Joseph and his family was necessary to set the stage of history for the coming of the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The story of Joseph is but one of many links in a long chain of stories in the Old Testament that are orchestrated to precede the coming of Christ. Someone who, like Joseph, will forgive and will save his people. And this story also showed us the past couple weeks that God was working in areas of Joseph's life that he didn't understand. And likewise, he's working in areas of our life that possibly we don't see and we don't understand. And in these, and in these pretty dark days that are in front of us, you know, as we watch our nation just continually to go down the wrong path, I mean, the path of insanity, really, right? Where right is wrong and wrong is right, our focus, like Joseph, simply just needs to be on God. We need to serve and trust him daily and leave the affairs of the world in his capable, capable hands. God is fully aware of what's happening in the United States. And he's at work in ways we do not see. It could very well be that he's setting the stage for the, stage for the return of his son, Jesus Christ, for his bride, for his church. 
Very well could be what's happening. But we don't know. That could be a long time coming. It also could very well be that he's using this time to gather a remnant, to gather people to himself in his due time, in his good pleasure. But anyway, during our time of waiting, I just ask you to do this. Go home tonight, today, and just think. Just reflect back on the last year of your life, the last five years of your life, the last 10 years of your life, and see the tapestry that God is weaving for you. It's there, just like it was there for Joseph. We just have to slow down. We just have to look for it. And the question is, is as we prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning, do you have that day-to-day personal relationship with God, the daily one, so God can weave that tapestry so the tapestry can be woven Are we cracking under the pressure of the heat of the world? Or are we leaning into this relationship with the Lord? And are we being formed into that rare, beautiful diamond while we're here on earth? Are we becoming more Christ-like every day?